get into our text today, I just want to get something out of the way. If you're close enough to see my hands, I tore them up using a post hole digger this weekend. So I don't have like some kind of flesh-eating bacteria disease that I'm aware of, at least. So I'm pretty sure that's the one cause for it. But I uh, wanted to clear that, um, so it wouldn't be distracting. Uh, our text this morning is uh, from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So if you've got the blue Bibles that are in the seats, it's on page 982. All right, Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, you are a God of peace, and you are a God who makes peace. You make peace with sinful people, and you make peace between sinful people. And... um, You don't guarantee us easy circumstances of life, but you do meet us in those circumstances. And you do work in us in a way that we can experience peace as individuals and as a people. And so we thank you for that grace. And we pray that today, as we see um, practices of peace, practices that we can adopt, that you command, that help us cultivate and experience that peace that we could uh, live more fully into that because, Lord, our world is not at peace in so many ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I watched a video recently of a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, She was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident when she was a teenager. And she has lived for decades now as a quadriplegic. So she can move her shoulders and arms. She can't use her hands. She can't move her legs. And also, she's had seasons been in and out of chronic pain. And so in this video, she was sharing about an experience she had had, you know, recently, where there was a weekend where her pain was so intense that she said it was just eating at her soul. And, you know, there's, there's not much that she can do about it. And so she said this was happening, and she was feeling so discouraged. Uh, and then suddenly, a hymn came to mind, and she just started singing this hymn. And she said, singing the hymn, it didn't make the pain go away, but it reset her focus on the goodness of God, and it helped her experience a sense of peace and hope that helped her endure that pain. So it didn't change her circumstances, but it moved her heart by focusing it on God and helped her experience peace even in the middle of pain. So Paul is getting close to the end of his letter to the Philippians we've been going through. He has one more big topic he's going to address after this. But he's kind of wrapping things up uh, that he's been saying to the Philippians through this letter. As you remember, he's in prison, 
and which seemed to frighten the Philippians. And so they wrote to him out of concern for him and also because they were experiencing some issues of their own, some kind of external pressures and internal tensions that were interfering with, that were destroying kind of their sense of peace. And so his letter has covered a few different topics, but they've all kind of come under the heading of this vision statement that he gave in Philippians 1 verse 27, which reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul wants the Philippians to be living in a way that honors the gospel, so the peace of God that they have through faith, that's what the gospel is. And he wants them to be striving side by side at peace with one another and spreading the gospel into the world confidently and peacefully. And so peace is a theme that underlies the passage that we have today. So Paul gives the Philippians a set of commands that don't necessarily seem connected to one another, but they're grounded in this concept of experiencing peace. So if you look first at verse 7, Paul writes, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then again at the end of verse 9, the end of our passage, he says, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the peace of God and the God of peace. Against the external pressure that gives them anxiety and the internal pressures that might pull them apart, Paul says, I want you to have, to experience the peace of God. I want you to have the presence of the God of peace. How just satisfying does that sound? That in all the contention and the anxiety and the strife in our world, and we're not even experiencing like true violence. It's just all rhetorical and emotional. But in this, we can live in such a way that we experience in ourselves and between ourselves and our relationships, peace, the peace of God and the God of peace. And so today, that's what we're looking at. Paul commands the Philippians to take up five practices that help Christians experience this peace. Five practices. Now, I'm assuming that you're going to remember these perfectly, leave here, memorize this passage, and listen to my sermon like three or four times so you really get all five down. But in the off chance that that doesn't happen, um, I would really hope that you hear at least one or two of these and think, I need more of that in my life, and begin thinking of ways to bring that into your daily life. So five practices of peace. The first practice is to rejoice in the Lord. So that's verse four. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he commands them to rejoice in the Lord. In case they miss it, he says, always. And remember, he's writing while he's in prison. And then he does, he writes the equivalent of, in case you didn't hear it in the back, again, I will say, rejoice. So a few weeks ago, our Paul, Pastor Paul here, preached on joy. And he gave this definition of joy. He said, joy is the positive emotion of the soul that comes from the spirit directing the soul to the beauty of Christ. So to build on that definition, we could say that rejoicing is directing our souls to the beauty of Christ in the hopes that God will fill us with joy. So rejoicing is a deliberate action of putting our attention, of putting our minds on the beauty of Christ 
in the hope that our emotions are going to follow that. So the Apostle Paul knows that he can't command them to feel things. By the way, if you can do that, tell me after service, because we have four kids, and we try that all the time. You know, be content. You know, feel happy. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, Paul commands them to direct their souls to the beauty of Christ always, in whatever circumstances they find themselves in, to see and savor the goodness of God somehow. Now, our culture is very feelings first, to where we treat our feelings as this authority that we're supposed to kind of explore and follow and be directed by. And that's partly a response to sort of an overly stoic culture before. Where it was like you squash your feelings, you don't have emotions. And so it's like there's, a, there's a, an overcorrection from you know, something that was also not totally healthy. So the, the Hebrew, the Jewish, and the Christian scriptures are very emotionally rich. There's a lot of emotion that goes on in the Bible. But while they're, also, they're very emotional, they also have a clear sense that we should direct our emotions, that our emotions are a reality, but they're not an authority. And so there's a call to experience your emotions and then move your emotions through how you think and how you live. And that's what Paul wants the Philippians to do, is to practice joy, to think and act and talk in a way that leads them to celebrate Christ in the hopes that their feelings will follow. So just on the human sociological level, uh, studies have shown that practicing happiness can be kind of like exercising a muscle, that acting happy can actually make you feel happier. Um, and so much more so with you know, the spiritual level of true joy, focusing our attention on the beauty of God makes us more prepared for him to fill our hearts with feelings of joy. So rejoicing most often looks like what we now call thanksgiving and praise. So thanksgiving is taking the good things of this world, so good food, good weather, good relationships, and looking up to God as we enjoy them. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So I can take a bowl of Tom Yum soup from Indochine Express, which is like my new favorite food, and I can just drink it. I, I could just drink the whole thing. I don't, uh, but we fight over it, my wife and I do. Um, and I can rejoice that there is a God who made food that tastes this good, and he made people who were clever enough to bring this goodness out of the food and who made it possible for me to buy and enjoy that soup. So that's Thanksgiving. That's taking a good thing and directing it to God. Rejoicing also looks like praise, which is turning directly to God and filling our attention with his goodness. That means meditating on who God is and what he has done. So memorizing scriptures that remind us of the goodness of God and thinking on those. It also means uh, singing, uh, talking, praying, singing together with other Christians about God's goodness. Um, I heard a pastor say this at one point. Christianity is kind of unique in how much singing is a core part of our religious experience compared to that of other religions. That for centuries, Christians have written songs and written new songs um, as a way of expressing our joy and you know, celebrating God. And that's, that's not as common in other traditions. So that's something that comes from joy. So Paul doesn't mean that we have to put on a plastic smile when we come to other Christians. It doesn't mean that we have to, you know, kind of sweep pain and hardship under the rug. But he wants us, even as we acknowledge the reality of our emotions and our pain, even as they're hard, 
to also direct ourselves to focus on the goodness of God. So that's what rejoicing is. That's the first practice. The second practice is to be reasonable. This is in verse 5. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So there's a public dimension here that we're not just to be reasonable to one another, but reasonable also to those outside the church who don't share our faith. Now, so the Greek word here is sometimes translated gentle. Um, in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul is writing the qualifications for an elder, a spiritual leader of the church, he says that they must not be violent, so that's physically violent, but also verbally violent, uh, but gentle. And so it directly contrasts this word here to being emotionally or verbally violent, spoiling for a fight. And so there's an emotional component here to where Christians should uh, kind of face others and address others in a way that's not reactive or anxious, but is even keeled. But it also has a, an intellectual dimension as well. Um, so our mental habits, including the way that we engage with disagreement with one another, which we talked about last week, Christians will have disagreement with one another. But the way that we handle those and even the way that we handle conversations with people outside the church should be marked by intellectual gentleness. And I think this really is exemplified well by James 1.19, where James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So that quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger is what it means to be intellectually gentle when we're in disagreement with somebody. So today, that, uh, or sorry, the, the Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer was once asked what he would say if he had an hour to share the gospel with a non-Christian. He said he would spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and listening so that he could spend the last five saying something meaningful that would connect to where the person was coming from. Now, obviously, he's exaggerating a little bit, but that's the practice that we should have, that as we listen well and engage in good conversation with, even with non-Christians or people we disagree with, we will learn how to speak meaningfully truth to that person's life. Um, we seem to have this idea in our culture right now that listening is a sign of weakness, that if I'm right, I should just talk, and I should talk louder, and I should talk harder so that I talk over and I drown out the other person. Because if I start listening, that means they're right and I'm wrong. That's not what is true, that we do have something to say as Christians, and what we have to say, the gospel we have to proclaim is true. But we can express that, we can share that gospel in a way, a reasonable way, that shows that we can listen, we can ask good questions, we can meet people where they are, and we can speak truth in a way that is as compelling as possible without, again, watering down or diminishing that truth. Um, one public Christian who I think exemplifies this very well, and I don't think he's right about everything necessarily, but just his approach is really good, is uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor, retired pastor now, who was in Manhattan in New York. And um, he's actually recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So he has this really good piece in The Atlantic on kind of processing his faith in light of you know, his coming death. But um, for uh, years and years, he's done a really good job of meeting people where they are, listening to the concerns and the, um, you know, the beliefs that people are coming at from a foundation first and speaking the gospel to them in a way that connects with things that they already believe, again, as much as possible. And so he draws the lines and divisions he needs to, but does so in a really peaceable, reasonable way. So that's what being reasonable 
means. The third practice is prayer. Start at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, Paul addresses the temptation to anxiety and worry here. Now, I'll say quickly that there is such a thing as an anxiety disorder that can have biological roots and that in an instance like that, something like medication can be helpful. Um, you know, there have been Christian traditions that kind of denied the need for something like that. And so that, that is real. But what Paul has in mind here is the, the mental habit of worrying, of kind of fixating on a problem only in your own mental power. Uh, it's like the mental equivalent of constantly picking up an object like a pin, or some people do with buttons or their hair. According to my wife, I fidget with my beard and uh, just kind of fiddling with it over and over again of picking it up, carrying it around, and um, keeping it kind of rattling around in your mind or socially in your conversation. So having conversations with people where the main thing you're doing is worrying together over something you can't do anything about. And so Paul knows that the antidote to worry isn't just to stop. It's to, he tells them what to do with their concerns. So he writes, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul says, if you have a concern, you as an individual or you as a group of people, pray it. Take it to God, who one, is able to do something about it when you're not, and two, who has the wisdom to know what needs to be done about it, because we don't necessarily. Um, and then just leave it there. So God doesn't mind us bringing him those things. At the end of December, we talked about a kind of prayer called lament, which is bringing very honest and raw pain and questions and doubts and challenges to God. And God welcomes that. We talked about how God doesn't mind us lamenting. He has no, he doesn't get put off. He doesn't get mad when we bring us those things. He wants us to bring that stuff to him. He wants our concerns to drive us not further into our own heads, but into his presence where we can meet him. And so if we're worried about our relationships, uh, our marriage, our kids, or being single, um, or if we're worried about our school or job, we should pray. If we're worried about the state of justice in the world, we should pray. If we're worried about the future of our country or the future of our world or the future of our family, we should pray, not worry about it. We should be praying it. I knew some folks who went on a mission trip to a developing world country and they landed, like, ready for action. And they told the local church leaders, they said, we're ready to go, we're ready to work, you know, send us off. We don't even need to sleep. And the local church, instead of leading them to do something, they led them to pray for hours. Like, not just for 15 minutes, for hours. And so that's the first thing they did, day one. And at the end of that, you know, this team kind of came to the leaders, and they were like, this is good and all, but, like, you know, we're here to work. We're here to do stuff. We're okay with that. And the leaders said, you know, you know, we have things for you to do. We, we have things that we can use your hands for. But much more than we need your hands, we need the hand of God moving at us or moving for us. And so praying for them was a more significant work than work. So prayer is a practice of peace. And we know that in part because Paul adds the extra command with thanksgiving. 
And thanksgiving is not because we have to butter up God by saying nice things about him and flatter him so he'll do what we want. That's not how God works. God knows everything. He knows our hearts. He doesn't need that from us. But he includes that because he wants the Philippians and he would want us to practice rejoicing because thanksgiving, like we said, is part of rejoicing, to practice rejoicing even when we're worrying. Because our worries, if that's all we focus on, that can consume our minds and become the biggest thing in our attention. We can lose sight of God's goodness. And it can make us imagine that the struggles and threats and defeats of life, which all are real, are stronger than the victory of God. But the Christian hope is more fundamental than any concerns or anxieties that we might have. We have as a fixed foundation the the hope, the faith, that God is going to come back. He's going to recreate the world with no sin or suffering or death. He's going to raise his people back to life in that world. And he's going to live with us forever in this face-to-face incredible relationship that, you know, the Bible describes is going to be like wiping every tear from every eye of his people. So there is a firm, fixed hope we have that is more real, in a sense, than whatever struggles we're going through now. And praying our concerns to God with thanksgiving grounds our thoughts and our affections in that hope. The fourth practice is governing your thoughts. Governing your thoughts. Let's read verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul tells the Philippians to take control of their thoughts and to direct those thoughts to worthwhile things. He gives this long list of attributes, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. It's kind of an invitation to a mental feast. He says there's so much out there that's worth having in your mind. Focus on that. Fill your thoughts and your conversation with worthwhile things. And he does something really interesting here that's not obvious to uh, kind of in the English, but the Philippian church is from an overwhelmingly Greek and Roman cultural background, not a Jewish one. So they didn't come to faith in Christ from the Hebrew scriptures. They came growing up hearing Greek and Roman stories. And there are elements of that cultural background that they had to repent of or leave behind as part of coming to faith. And you know, they've submitted their beliefs and their moral compasses and their ways of life, their habits to God. And since Christianity is rooted in Judaism, we might think that Paul would say, just steep yourself in Jewish cultural stuff and completely leave behind your culture. But the Greek words that Paul lists here, all these attributes, they are barely ever found in Jewish literature. They are much more common in Greek and Roman moral literature. And so Paul actually, you know, we can sometimes characterize Roman culture of this time as like mindless, debauched hedonism. And there was a lot of mindless, debauched hedonism. But it also had moral philosophers. It had beautiful poetry. It had amazing legal and architectural achievements and stories of courage and family piety that are inspiring. That, you know, obviously for Paul to include these Greek virtues in the Feast of the Mind, it's not moral relativism. So these things have to be filtered and determined through the lens of Christianity. That's what decides what is true and honorable and all these things. But even with that filter, um, there are things in their culture 
that we would say resonate with the truths of Christianity. And so Paul, he invites them. He's like, if there's good in your own culture, if you grew up with something that's worthwhile, good, keep it and connect that to what you're learning from the scriptures and what you're learning about the gospel. And so bringing that to us today, Christians are called to fill our minds with things that lead us toward the love of God and the love of neighbor. So there's a warning and an invitation here. We want to lead ourselves toward truth and away from falsehood, toward honor and away from dishonor, toward purity and away from impurity. And so that doesn't necessarily mean cutting out all content that isn't explicitly Christian. So that's kind of Paul's implication with this passage. But we should be thinking about what we're watching and reading and listening to and asking the question, does this really lead me in a good direction? Is this really something that's like helping me along? Or is this something that if I'm honest, it's not helping me toward God? Um, And the invitation is to find things that's in scripture, in nature, uh, or in history and culture, stories, poems, movies, whatever, that move you in a good direction and to fill our minds with those things. There is so much out there. There's much more out there than there used to be, than there was in their day. And so the, the invitation is to govern our thoughts toward better things. And so finally, the fifth practice is following good examples. Following good examples. This is verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So like he's done before in this letter, Paul calls the Philippians to follow his example, just like he calls them to follow the examples of other mature Christians. Human beings, not just kids, but adults too, are very shaped by the relationships around us, the people that we are in community and in friendship with. That's better for better and worse. So Paul lived among the Philippians in a way that demonstrated the truths of the gospel. So he showed them what things like dedication to Christ, what sacrificial love, what a firm hope in the resurrection look like in practice, how they change how a person spends their hours on a Wednesday. And he calls them to live like he did and like the other older Christians around them. So this is so valuable today. Um, It's possible, and sometimes this happens, sometimes God works this way, that someone could come to Christ and grow in Christianity, you know, just by having resources like a Bible or online videos. But much more often, and much more so, we grow in Christianity by following the examples of Christians who come before us, by seeing what the faith looks like lived out in practice, either from godly parents or from, uh, you know, other adults in our lives or even from friends and letting that influence show us and shape us in how we live. I'm pretty new to this church, if you're new. Uh, We haven't been here six months yet, but I've seen and heard lots of stories about how older adults in this church have opened their lives to young adults and to students, uh, built relationships with them, and showed them what it means to live with Christ as a worker, as a parent, as, you know, in whatever aspect of life. The truths about God are unchanging, but the way that they're incarnated and lived out day to day uh, can be as varied as, you know, human beings are varied. And so those visible examples, those living examples of godliness, they shape us. This is also why we make such a big deal about Christian community for everyone, from, you know, old adults, young adults, uh, teenagers, and youth. 
that just sociologically, our friends have an influence not just on how we dress and talk, but on our eating habits, our weights, our mood, all kinds of things. Uh, On average, in many ways, we become more like our friends even than we become like our spouse. And so we become like the people that we're surrounded by. And so because of that, if we're going to become people who experience and who give off, who share God's peace, then we need, we need the practice of surrounding ourselves with people who have that relationship with God and will shape us in that direction too. So it's five practices. Rejoice in the Lord, be reasonable, pray, govern your thoughts, and follow good examples. These aren't things we do to earn God's favor like we've talked about and sung about, um, but they're practices that help people who have come to peace with God through faith experience that peace and share that peace with others. Let's pray. God, we thank you again that you have given us peace with you um, by grace through faith. And um, there is a way to live. There are multiple ways to live that help us experience that peace and show that peace. Um, And uh, by your grace, you have shown many of us that through godly examples. Um, We have that in your word. Um, We have all kinds of things that can help us live in a way that's faithful to you and help us experience your peace. And so, again, I pray that as we live our lives, um, that we would experience that, that we would uh, be putting these things into practice so we can see and enjoy and celebrate you and share you with others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.